clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for our first Uniquely Rockefeller special client event for 2022. Today's event will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Rockefeller Global Family Office Chief Investment Officer Jimmy Chang. If you're unable to stay with us for the entire duration of today's presentation, a replay will be made available shortly after we conclude through our website rcm.rocco.com and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you very much, Tom. Good morning, everybody. Clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller, and welcome to our 36th in the client speaker series that we've run over the last two years. Our first of 2022, and Happy New Year to everybody on the call as well. Uh, and one that I have to say I'm looking forward to as much as the people on the call, uh, given uh, Jimmy Chang's uh, work and research and focus on what's going on in the world uh, on a real-time basis. So for those who are not as familiar with Jimmy, I'll do a little bit on his background. Uh, and obviously the Rockefeller team is very familiar with Jimmy and his work. But as Tom said, Jimmy is the Chief Investment Officer for Rockefeller Global Family Office. He's a member of the firm's management committee, a chartered financial analyst, and one of our senior partners uh, that we're all proud to count as a partner. He's been at Rockefeller for more than 16 years. Prior to the role he's in now as Chief Investment Officer, which he took over in 2020, he was the Chief Investment Strategist and a Senior Portfolio Manager at Rockefeller Asset Management where he co-managed several equity strategies and had oversight of the fixed income group. Uh, prior to joining Rockefeller in 2004, Jimmy was the senior vice president, chief technology strategist and senior technology analyst at U.S. Trust Company in New York. Uh, he's been an, an investor investing and in, on top of markets his whole career, uh, which is why we're all excited to have him here today. So, uh, Jimmy, uh, welcome back to the program. I think the last time you and I did this was earlier in the pandemic, yes? Oh, yes, that was back in uh, March 2020, and it's amazing. It's almost two years, and we're still dealing with the pandemic, but at least we're not seeing a bright light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, and before we get to that, Jimmy, let's start right off the top, uh, because everybody's uh, interested in what you have to say on this. Uh, as we look back at 2021, what were some of the most important developments in 2021 that will have continued impact in 2022 as we uh, head down a new year now? Yeah, you know, when we look back at 2021, um, I would call it a year of the perfect alignment. It was one of those rare occasions where the stars were perfectly aligned with massive fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and a vaccine that accelerated the pace of uh, reopening normalization. And as a result, uh, the economy did really well. Uh, GDP, you know, the real GDP growth in the U.S. was probably close to 6%. And corporate earnings grew, I think, around, uh, you know, by the end of this earnings season will be over 50% year on year. So it was a very strong year. But there's some side effects. And what happened, in fact, if there's one chart that captured the essence of last year, and Tom, you can bring it up, it's really the consumer spending on durable goods. Because during the pandemic, we were not spending as much on, you know, services, uh, you know, leisurely activities. So we shifted spending to buy stuff. We're loading up, um, you know, things from computers, big screen TVs, iPhones to automobiles and home furnishings. And as a result, if you look at the chart, um, the consumer spending on durable goods really spiked up. Um, in the last decade, that number grew at about a 4% pace each year. And that's in line with the uh, nominal GDP growth. But then during the pandemic, as we shifted spending, and also with massive stimulus come from Washington. And, you know, if you think about a typical family of four, they probably received more than or around $11,000 of stimulus from Washington, $2,000 per person, plus a child tax credit in the back half of the year. So there was so much money going into buying stuff, and that created the side effect in the form of inflation. Because as you know, the supply chain could not react so quickly, right? It is inelastic. In fact, it was being disrupted by the pandemic. So suddenly we get so much order coming in, prices went up, 
So, so by close to year end, the Fed had to react to inflation, which they initially thought was transitory. Uh, it is still debatable. Um, so what's lingering into 2022 now is one, inflation continues to be a threat. The Fed is turning more hawkish. Um, and also the other thing is we used up so much of the stimulus, but by comparison, 22 will feel like there's a physical cliff coming. Um, and from a corporate earnings standpoint, companies are still in great financial shape. There will be more stock repurchase, um, you know, more stock buyback, uh, you know, dividend increases. But some of the companies catering to consumers uh, in durable goods could be affected as this rising spending on durable goods looks unsustainable. At some point, it'll come down closer to trend, and that will create some volatility in the market. Jimmy, can I ask you before we go, because I want to go on to Fed, but before we go there, when you look at this chart, even if you didn't have a pandemic affecting the ability of companies and the supply chain around the world, if you had that kind of spike that you have in this chart in consumption and in the, the percentage increases you were talking about in some of the durable goods, even without a pandemic, there might have been supply chain and inflation issues. Is that, do you think that that's uh, accurate or if we didn't have a pandemic, uh, the supply chain and companies would have been able to meet the demand without, you know, the, the kind of inflationary pressure that we, we've seen. Is it, you know, is it because of the pandemic or even without the pandemic, when you have a line that steep and that sharp, you would have taxed the system and created some inflationary pressure anyway? Yeah, so even without the pandemic disruption, if demand were to rise as, you know, such a steep level, it would have created supply chain disruptions because the global supply chain is very fine-tuned with just-in-time you know, manufacturing. Um, but of course, without a pandemic, we wouldn't have this kind of spike up in durable goods spending because uh, you know, spending on services fell below trend because of the pandemic. So in 2022, we're likely to see a normalization on the services side. I think once we get beyond the Omicron wave, We'll go back, you know, taking vacation, going to restaurants, going to shows, concerts. Uh, we'll start flying again, taking cruise, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, for some other braver people. Um, so you will see services spending going back up while spending on durable goods on the consumer side start to decelerate. And the good news here is that services is a much bigger component than spending on durable goods. So as we transition from durable goods spending into services, I think the economy will fare okay overall. I'm sure that, uh, Jimmy, we'll get to this, that has implications for which parts of the market outperform. Interesting enough, I was just talking in the last couple of days to somebody who, who runs a, um, you know, a vacation company, puts on uh, safaris and things like that in, in Africa. And I told them I thought they would have a slingshot in their business as we get into 22 and beyond, because there's this pent up demand for travel and for getting out and for being back in the natural environment. That's probably going to happen, right? That they'll get a slingshot. They should. Of course, a lot will depend on the various restrictions countries place on travel. Um, I think it's very difficult when you plan a vacation, uh, you know, with the contingency plan that what if you get sick and, you know, not being able to return for the country, you know, you know I mean, back to the U.S. because of the test requirement to board the flight. So, in fact, one advice is just, you know, when you buy the health insurance, when you travel overseas, make sure they do cover hotel stays. So in case you have to be quarantined someplace, you know, remotely, that will be covered. That's, uh, that's good advice. And, yeah, there's a lot of pent-up demand for vacation, for, for, for travels. I mean, I can't wait to get out. Yeah, I think that's a general, uh, a general feeling really around the world. So, Jimmy, let's go to Fed, which is uh, probably the biggest uh, factor for uh, for all of us and, and certainly for markets and all the private wealth teams listening. So, um, you know, if we start with the, the blunt question at the beginning, which everybody's still debating, you know, history will prove one way or the other, but uh, has the Fed made a policy mistake by waiting too long, given the levels of inflation we're seeing on a persistent basis now? And, you know, I, I sit on uh, some endowment committees and we're talking about wage increases at universities and for staff beyond anything that's been seen in you know 10 15 20 years you know so and that's one of the things about inflation when it gets embedded and you and i have been around i mean millennials and generation z there's never been inflation in their lifetime but we lived it 
you know, through the late 70s and early 80s. And when it gets embedded, people expect to see prices higher. They expect the wages to be higher. So did they wait too long? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, if there's a single word answer is yes. And obviously, we have the benefit of the hindsight. But if you look at some luminaries such as Larry Summers, Bill Dudley, they were warning, uh, you know, early last year that the Fed was uh, being way too dovish. Uh, their open embrace of inflation, changing policy to be data dependent, uh, really, you know, you know, create a very dangerous situation where they may have to play catch up at some point and tighten more aggressively. And that's potentially where the Fed finds itself now. But that said, I also thought that the Fed was doing it, you know, I personally think the QE program last year at $120 billion a month was unnecessary. But what the Fed was doing was really facilitating Washington's big spending. So last year, we ran a cash deficit of about $2.5 trillion. We're drawing down the checking account at the Fed. So, so the total amount of net debt issued by the Treasury was about $1.7 trillion. And that was a lot of supply coming to the market. And the Fed was there. You know, it picked up close to a trillion dollars of it. So in a way, the Fed was doing it to facilitate Washington's spending. And it was the fiscal spending that drove up this supply chain, you know, well, you know, this strong demand that affected the supply chain and created the inflation. So initially they thought that was temporary, was transitory. But then as you said, it becomes a mindset. We start to see prices go up. And on top of it, energy is another issue, right? Energy prices went through the roof, especially in Europe, in parts of Asia, uh, where natural gas prices went up fivefold. So as expectations, you know, people start to anticipate higher inflation in the out years, they demand higher wages, and then companies start to raise prices. So you get this upward spiral. So this is what the Fed has to react to now. So I do think they're behind the curve. And in fact, in past cycles, when the unemployment rate falls to about 4.2%, the Fed was already in the tightening mode. This time around, you know, we hit 4.2% unemployment in November. And we're still easing right now because QE is not yet over. So, Jimmy, um, uh, fair to say, just to finish that part of the dialogue, that history is not going to judge them well on the inflation front. And as they try to get a grip on this going forward, that some of these policy mistakes may may create ripples going forward here. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the uh, bond market has been pushing back. Now, we're seeing here early in the year, yields start to move higher. But when you consider inflation at close to 7% and GDP growth uh, in 2021 being close to 6% and this year probably north of 3% to 4%, 10-year uh, is still, you know, 1.6 plus percent feels really low. So what the bond market is fearing is that the Fed may overreact to inflation now, start to tighten at a quicker pace, and that will pull forward the eventual recession. In fact, I have another chart here, you know, Tom, you can bring it up. This shows the, uh, you mean, every episode of high inflation since World War II, uh, there were actually seven of them, all except the one induced by the Korean War in the early 1950s, you know, wind up being, uh, you know, eventually led to a recession. Because what happened is inflation started to move higher, the Fed reacts aggressively, that chokes off uh, you know, the recovery or the expansion. It was different in 1950 with the Korean War because the government used price control. So, so, so when the war broke out in the 19, you know, in mid-1950, uh, prices went through the roof, inflation became double digit. The government came in, controlled prices, and that killed inflation. And then so we eventually had a recession after the war. But in most other instances, the Fed had to react to inflation, and the casualty is the expansion. So the market is fearing that the history may repeat itself, but that's just part of the business cycle. So at some point in the next few years, we don't know whether it's like, uh, you know, 2024, 25, there will be another recession, unfortunately. And the bond market is just taking a more cautious view, believing that the Fed is making a mistake by not being, you know, more hawkish. And they're also arguing that when we eventually have that recession, deflation will come back. And given the elevated you know, level of debt in the system, rates cannot move too high. So in fact, the market is only pricing in the Fed funds rate peaking at about 1.5, 1.6%, while the Fed is arguing that the natural rate should be 2.5%.
So how do you think, uh, so, so how will that play out, do you think, in, in 2022? Markets pricing in three rate hikes at this point. Um, uh, the, the, and, and, you know, what, when they listen to Powell's words and they see the, the change in posture, remember that first time he came out and all of a sudden he was, it, he was renominated. And then, you know, the next time he spoke, he, he sounded like a different guy. So that's what the market's reacting to. So the market says three rate hikes. Do you think they actually do that or does, do they tolerate, you know, are they, are they maybe raise, raising the inflation level they're targeting uh, to, to allow them to not go after it as aggressively as the bond market fears now? How are they going to thread this? Yeah. I think the good news is that the market is now pricing in three rate hikes. So even if we get three hikes, it's not an incremental negative. Um, I think the other thing to pay attention to is actually what they do with the balance sheet. Because once they finish QE in mid-March and they start say, you know, you know, hiking rates say in May or in June, what would they do with the balance sheet? Do they let it run off naturally, uh, you know, not replenishing the, the debt that you know, matures? Or uh, would they actually start selling some of the uh, you know, holdings on the balance sheet? So that's the question. I personally lean on the more dovish side. I, I do think the Fed is probably cognizant of the risk that the market could go down a lot. I'd be interested to see how the market, I mean, how the Fed will react. Should we get a double digit pullback in the market, which could push them to be somewhat dovish? I also think that 3% inflation could be tolerable uh, as long as bond yields remain fairly uh, subdued. So you have negative real interest rate. What that does is it hurts bond investors, but it helps the government and, and the debt issuer. In fact, after World War II, the way we brought down the debt to GDP was through inflation. Because as you know, we had debt to GDP, the, you know, GDP is in the denominator and the debt doesn't change. So, so, so if you have 100% debt to GDP and your GDP, nominal GDP grows by 20% because of inflation, 20% inflation, 100% over 120, all of a sudden you're down to 83% debt to GDP. So, so, so the way to manage our debt our debt to GDP to bring it down is inflation. So I do think they will tolerate potentially 3% inflation. And Jimmy, maybe there, maybe his, his statements have become more aggressive and they sound more hawkish, which has caused the market to think three rate hikes and, and to worry about them overreacting. But maybe he's just using that, the bully pulpit, to try to talk it in a certain direction. But he goes where you're saying, which is, uh, let's get the level of debt down, uh, you know, allow a, a higher level of inflation because it adds up. If you're tolerating three instead of two over a five-year period, it becomes meaningful. And then they try to keep rates a little bit lower so the government, the, you know, the federal government can service the massive debt they've taken on. So it may be words on one side and then actions are more like what you're describing. Yeah, some verbal intervention. And they also may have some cover with inflation. Now, the first quarter inflation will still remain very high because of the base effect. We'll probably get 6% plus or maybe even over 7% CPI reading on a year-over-year basis. But then inflation started to rise in the spring of last year. In April last year, it went to 4.2% and then subsequently even higher by late in the year. So the comparisons get more difficult. So on year-over-year basis, we will start to see inflation moderating. So that could give the Fed some cover you know, maybe not, you know, not to be as aggressive as three hikes this year. So, so that's the biggest delta this year. How will the Fed react to the incoming data? Really, how hawkish will they be? Um, I, my, my guess is that they will be somewhat a little bit dovish than the expectation. And Jimmy, what about uh, market? And I'm going to interpose a few questions that are coming in from uh, from the audience here, uh, but market reaction, if you get a 7% inflation number um, early in 2022, the market now more nervous about a, a more aggressive Fed, do you think that creates an issue for the market? I think for, you know, to investors, that 6 7% head on inflation shouldn't be a surprise because, you know, most people are publishing, economies are forecasting a higher level of inflation in the first quarter. The issue is the media, is politicians, is everyday Americans, right? We're paying higher prices. So that creates this uh, dissatisfaction. In fact, it's affecting the, the passage of Build Back Better because, you know, Joe mentions, you know, Senator Manchin is concerned about inflation. Uh, so, so that's a bigger issue. But I think to the market, we're actually going to be focusing on sort of the sequential rate of inflation 
and then wait for the springtime, and and by which time we, we you know we we should see inflation moderating. Uh, great. I'm going to come back to build back better, but let me take two questions that have come in uh, over Teams. Uh, ben Clem says the following: How are you thinking about portfolio positioning in real assets or other alternatives to bonds and cash, given continued high inflation? Um, and then he's, he's the second question. Uh, Ben's going for all of it here. Uh, same question with respect to growth versus value on equities. Yeah. So so on the real asset side, actually like exposure to real assets. Um, I, I do think they are still opportunities on the commodity side, whether you're talking about select base metals or even select fossil fuels, given the underinvestments over the last several years, it, it could lead to some uh, constrained supply. Of course, with oil, a lot will depend on what Russia, what OPEC does, but I do think they also want to you know, maintain somewhat elevated prices. So I think Exposure to some of these uh, commodities could do well. I still think there's a role for precious metals, uh, which is viewed as a safe haven, a, a diversifier of risk. It's less correlated with risk assets like equities, so there's a role for it. And I do think things like real estate, a lot depends on the location, right? Uh, you know, certainly uh, we're more cautious on office complex. Uh, we're more, you know, positive on you know real estate opportunities in regions where. People are moving to where they have population growth. You know, south. Uh, you know, in Houston, Austin. Now, obviously, you have to be really selective because some of these markets have run up a lot. But I do think it still makes sense in the in, in, in you know in the context of a portfolio to have those diversified exposure to real assets. Uh, in terms of equity styles, um, growth, you know, versus value. My bet is that in the first half of this year, value should do better. And two catalysts. One is potentially rates moving higher. We're seeing a little bit of steepening of the yield curve that tends to favor uh, financial services, you know. And, and also, when, you know, when you look at the economy getting beyond Omicron, we're likely to see a reacceleration in growth rate, if not in the U.S., outside the U.S. Many other countries have been, you know, way behind us in dealing with the pandemic. So, so once they they, they, they get beyond this Omicron wave, potentially you see rising demand that that could drive some of these commodity demands, you know, energy prices higher. Uh, so I do favor value over growth at this part of the year. Into the second half, I believe the focus will be more on the quality side and some selective growth opportunities because eventually uh, growth will start to decelerate. And I do think uh, there could be some rotation. The frustrating thing with the, the, the value growth has been just the rotation has been so frequent. And if you look at last year, it's like every two, three months, there's a rotation back to growth and then back to value. Um, so, so in the end, I do think uh, at least for the next six months, I think that is still well positioned. And I do think as the business cycle gets older and we're into mid cycle now, the focus should be on quality. Uh, great answers um, and great insight. Uh, I'll take one more question uh, around these topics and then we'll go on to build back better and then uh, Omicron and China. Uh, Jason Stern comes in with uh, a skeptical question. Uh, do you expect the Fed to continue to change the way inflation is measured in order to continue to obfuscate the actual rate of inflation? Uh, uh, what would you say to Jason uh, on that? Well, Jason, you're young and cynical. Um, but they've been doing it for 30 years. I mean, in fact, if you measure inflation the way it was calculated back in early 1980, we actually have double-digit inflation. It's probably in the range of 14 to 15% based on 1980s methodology. So they will continue to massage the way they calculate inflation. Um, the, the whole idea is to understate it because it's for budgetary purpose, because there's a cost of living adjustment in a lot of the transfer payments and it's to the government's benefit to minimize that payment. So, so they want to understate inflation uh, to, to kind of reduce the amount of raises that, that, that they give out. In fact, this year, Social Security recipients, I think will get something like a 5.9% increase from a year ago uh, because of the, you know, the, the cost of living adjustment. So, so it's in government's interest to understate inflation. Uh, so Jimmy, let's go to uh, uh, Build Back Better. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, President Biden has had a really hard time with this, and uh, he's got the progressives on one side pushing for more, and then he's got uh, moderates led by Joe Manchin, who's uh, 
Uh, I remember after the election, I said to somebody, you know, the most powerful Joe at the end of the day here might be Joe Manchin. Uh, and here it is. Um, so uh, how how is this going to get settled now as we are into 2022? Manchin's under enormous pressure. Uh, the amount of visibility he gets, he's got people, you know, all over the political spectrum praising him or, or going after him on every front. Um, so enormous pressure on the man uh, himself. Um, how do you think this ends? Uh, what Will we see a build back better, as they call it, uh, policy and, I mean, uh, 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 legislation? And, and what will actually be in the legislation? What will the price tag be when we get there? You know, I think in the end, there has to be a compromise. I think build back better will become fewer the better. Uh, they'll focus on a few things. I think there will be subsidies on the uh, electric vehicle side for alternative energy that will they intact. Uh, I think there will be subsidy for ACA, um, but th there will be more slimmed down child tax credit, uh, you know, in a higher qualification uh, hurdle. Um, so my guess is probably something in the range of a trillion dollars, um, but it's still a difficult fight for the White House because the problem with the White House is that President Biden has very low approval uh, in ratings right now. If you look back to uh, you know, starting in the Nixon era to now, um, there's only one president having lower approval rating than Joe Biden at the end of his first year, and that was President Trump. Uh, so, you know, it is very difficult for the president to push a big agenda when his approval ratings is so low. Um, but I do think Democrats eventually will come through. This is probably their last opportunity to do something big legislatively because beyond that, we'll move into the election season. And I do think midterm election will be very tough on the Democrats. Uh, the House will most likely go to the Republican side and maybe even the Senate will be flipped. So the next two years will be very difficult for the White House. So, so they need to get something down. I think there will be a compromise, a scaled down version. Yeah, and, and so from a midterm election standpoint, the consensus view at this point is that it could be a resounding Republican uh, uh, win, you know, where they take back the Senate and even the House. Uh, let's assume that's the base case now, since it's it's out there so much. Um, what does that mean for the two years between 22 and 24 of basically gridlock and lower fiscal spending? Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, it's very difficult to get things down. And I think the problem with our politics is the loss of center, the political center. I think Democrats will need to regroup but their challenge will be that many of the uh, more moderate members will likely lose out. So what you wind up is a, uh, a even more left-leaning uh, caucus, and that will make it hard for whoever succeeds Nancy Pelosi. And I'm assuming Speaker Pelosi will likely retire, and his successor will have a difficult time trying to kind of rebrand and regroup uh, you know, for the party. Um, White House will focus on more on, you know, executive orders, what they can do in the executive branch rather than getting things done through Congress. So we're likely to see more executive orders on the immigration front, uh, probably on the antitrust fronts, uh, but not much will be accomplished in the Congress in 23 and 24. And that could mean potentially uh, more of a fiscal cliff. Now that may be bad, but during normal times, the market tend to favor a split, you know, a split government, uh, believing that they can do less harm to the market. You know. So, so that may not be so bad, you know, to the market from a uh, from the standpoint of not, you know, too much additional damage from Washington. And the biggest gift we got uh, with all this spending program is that we actually got away with tax hikes. I mean, corporate tax rates will remain at 21 percent. There's no hike in individual tax rates. So, so those are two big surprises from 2021, and that's really a gift to the market. Uh, that's a great analysis. Again, uh, I, I won't go to 24. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for a future uh, interview. Uh, but I was watching a news program the other day where they went around the table asking the odds for Biden against Trump again. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting uh, few years here. But let's go to COVID. Speaking of uh, challenging times, uh, Jimmy, and now we've got Omicron, um, milder symptoms, um, but a lot of disruption, a lot of contagion. What happens from here on the COVID front in your eyes and how does that impact uh, markets? 
I'm actually cautiously optimistic. Um, I do think, in a way, Omicron is almost like the nature's vaccination um, because it, it, it has certain side effect, um, but it confers perhaps stronger natural immunity. And it's been shown, at least in South Africa, to be uh, effective against the Delta variant. So hopefully we won't get more deadly mutation going forward. And, and if that's the case, uh, while a lot of people will get infected, whether you're vaccinated or not, uh, this is going to spread worldwide, create some disruptions in the near term. But I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Once we get beyond it, I do think that accelerates the process of normalization. People will feel like they have stronger immunity now. Behavior will change. And I think some of the restrictions will start to uh, fade. I mean, it no longer makes sense with a lot of these restrictions if the vaccinated people are also contagious. So, so that will prompt rethinking about policies. So I do think restrictions start to come off. People feel better beyond this Omicron wave. And, and that's actually very positive for the global economy. Yeah, but Jimmy, that leads us to China, who's really the, <laughs> the lone holdout now in, in a zero COVID policy. The Australians and New Zealand, other countries have thrown in the towel. So the Chinese have, have stuck to it. And in fact, and you have more insight in this than anybody, so I uh, want you to, to go on this. Uh, they'll lock down an entire city for just a few cases. Their economy clearly has uh, uh, declining momentum as a result. And plus, you have them cracking down on companies, which you know anybody investing in China has seen. So you know what happens there? And you know we have Olympics coming up. Uh, the 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 and I'm asking this obviously because it's the world's second biggest economy. And, and it's got to be a big part of the macro picture moving forward here, whether you invest there or not. So what are your views on China? And I know your wife was just there visiting your parents. So uh, the uh, the audience is going to get some real real time insight here. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. So my wife has two elderly parents in Chengdu, China, and uh, it's been two years since she last saw, you know, saw them. So, so she just went back to China, landed in Shanghai, got quarantined for two weeks in a hotel. Uh, just got released from the quarantine, and now there's contradictory, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of, you know, well, contradiction on what's the next step, whether she has to stay in Shanghai for seven days more, um, where she can roam around the city but cannot leave the city, I don't know why, or can she just go back home where she will have to quarantine for another two weeks in her apartment with a monitor installed on her door. So, so it's just so restrictive. It's really hurting the economy. And in fact, what's interesting is that uh, while the Chinese real estate market is not doing well, the booming construction is building quarantine centers because all these cities are being told they have zero tolerance. And if there's any case not breaking out, they, they just ship these people from neighborhoods, from buildings and ship them into these quarantine centers. And this is a political decision because Xi Jinping made a bet that by, by showcasing zero COVID tolerance at early stage of the pandemic, let's say middle of 2020 into late 2020, they were trying to convince the Chinese people that this means the CCP, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party system, is superior to the rest of the world, especially the West, the American-led system. Uh, and they were showing the news how we're all getting infected here, we're dying, and, and yeah, they're in the, the, this paradise. But what we're not seeing now is we have resiliency and they have a problem right now because it's a political decision which they cannot backtrack because they're involving a power transition. Xi Jinping wants to get a third term that will be ratified by the party Congress late in the year. So between now and then, he cannot afford to back down. And then the biggest challenge is the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in another month. I mean, athletes coming in and journalists um, many of them will carry the Omicron virus. So they will have a huge containment effort trying to uh, keep these people secluded from the rest of the population. It's a huge undertaking. Um, it's going to create more disruptions. And unfortunately, China is the second largest economy in the world. As their economy slows down, it's going to affect the global growth. And, and I do think uh, that the Earth's 6% automatic GDP growth, it was propped up by property bubbles and some of these other issues. And in fact, the biggest challenge to China is really the demographics. And, and uh, you know, Tommy, if you can bring up, I think it's chart number five here. China has an aging 
demographics because of the one-child policy. And if you look at the chart on the left, that's the working age population, which created this huge dividend in the last two decades, uh, and then it peaked in 2013. So now they realize they have a problem. They're trying to promote three-child policy uh, very quickly. And if you look at their population pyramid, it's a terrible shape. It's not a pyramid anymore. Uh, they have fewer you know, younger population, and it's actually a vase-shaped uh, you know, pyramid. And that you know creates a problem in the coming years. Even if they go to three children per family now, it'll take 20 years to fix the issue. So I actually think that China may not become the biggest economy in the world as many people have forecasted, say by 2030. I actually think we are still in a stronger position. I think Chinese natural growth rate is probably just two to three percent, and they will have to revert to that trend at some point, like the rest of the world. So, so China, you know, the, the real threat to us is really you know, having to deal with a lot of internal issues. Jimmy, when you add all that together, you know, if you're Xi Jinping and, and, and the, the, the people counseling him, so you've got the demographic challenge that, that you've listed here, which, which obviously is, is shared in a lot of countries around the world. I was reading recently the number of countries now with declining populations continues to increase. But you know they they're doing it. You know it's happening in a fashion that's going to be very challenging from an economic standpoint. You've got the short-term COVID challenges. You've got a crackdown on companies and 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 in particular in the technology space. Uh, you've got a desire for the third term. And why why aren't they pulling back on the crackdown? I mean, when when you look at it all, isn't it a risky mix? And and obviously the party's done a a, a very good job in a lot of ways for many years. So when they're looking at this, why why aren't they um, uh, uh, you know taking account of this and repositioning in certain places, including the pressure being brought on Chinese companies now? Yeah, I think it's a real challenge. They're taking on too many things at once, and so I do believe that they're likely to ease a little bit. Uh, central banks will probably start to ease. Uh, you're seeing Chinese credit impulse start to bottom. Uh, in November, maybe that starts to improve. So at least temporarily, things will get a little better. But I think from a regulation standpoint, um, they, the, the government is just in control of so many things. Eventually, the whole economy is like a state-owned enterprise. So unfortunately, you will continue to see private enterprises getting more diminished, uh, you know, because Xi Jinping's whole philosophy is more into state control. He, he's thinking very much the, the Maoist thinking that the state, the party knows better. Uh, so I, I do think that will harm them in the long run. Um, in, in terms of the population issue that you mentioned, the, the demographic issue that many other countries also share. And in fact, our population pyramid doesn't look so good also. In fact, most developed countries have this fertility issue. But the difference is in the West, we have immigration. I mean, mm -hmm. if we do it smartly, we can attract the best, the smartest people from other countries, from emerging markets. Whereas I don't think people are dying to immigrate to China, given the, the, the kind of system that you know that, that they have to contend. So, so, so I do think we're still better positioned with a flexible, uh, you know, immigration policy. Hopefully, we do it right. And, and I, I am concerned about what China will do. It's really like they spend all these bullets. Uh, what will continue to drive the growth going forward? You know, at five, six percent, very difficult to you know to get to. Uh, unless they keep on building non-productive assets. Yeah, that's a, a great analysis, uh, Jimmy. And, and actually, the immigration benefit to our society is something I, I talk about all the time. Uh, particularly, you know, if, if the federal government, if the two parties could get together on a, um, you know, on a on a well-conceived immigration policy, it can be a huge advantage. And obviously, it has been economically for us. If you look at companies that have been founded by immigrants and the number of immigrants that have helped in so many critical industries uh, that can keep the population growing in a productive way here. And, and as you said, they don't have that. Jimmy, when you put all this together, one of the other topics that comes up is Taiwan. Um, and what is your view on, on uh, Taiwan and, and the possibility of them making a, a, an aggressive military move there, particularly in the face of all the just challenges you just walked through? If, if you listen to you, it seemed to me that 
Taiwan is not, that's not something I'd be taking on in the next few years. Is, is that the calculus you think that that will emerge, you know, from Xi Jinping and the people advising him? I think logically speaking, it will be too much risk for China to make a move on Taiwan. But on the other hand, Xi Jinping is a man of uh, strong beliefs and action. He, he's very bold and he truly believes that uh, one of his overarching goal is to reunify Taiwan with the motherland. So, so we don't know what his timetable is. And if the domestic problem continues to fester, would he take a risk and make a move on Taiwan to kind of divert the attention, uh, you know, channel the anger at, uh, you know, at the rest of the world? Because we will more, you know, most likely stand up for Taiwan. Uh, you know, if you look at Taiwan, it's really geopolitically and economically one of the most important regions in the world because of semiconductor. I mean, Morris Chang, uh, whom I share the last name with, but no affiliation, you know, no, no, you know, no relation here. He founded TMC in Taiwan and grew it into the most advanced semiconductor company in the world with the most leading edge technology. Semiconductor is the lifeblood of the modern digital economy. So all these things go through the Taiwan, you know, fast space in Taiwan. If we were to lose Taiwan to China, the whole global economy is taken hostage. So, so just from an economic standpoint, from that technology standpoint, we have to defend Taiwan. So that makes it very interesting with China knowing that we will defend Taiwan, but for domestic consumption, they may choose to still make a move on Taiwan at some point. So that's a potential black swan event. I, I view it as a low probability event for now, but give another few years, you know, we'll see how things evolve and I cannot rule that out. You know, Jimmy, it's interesting. I think that this is one of the areas where you now have a bipartisan consensus in the United States, obviously very few areas. But if you look at the recent military budget and the spending, um, both parties are very focused on trying to check that potential move. Uh, and the American military is going to be investing in that region quite a bit. Indeed, I think that's a new flashpoint. Um, and, and Japan has made it clear that they will defend Taiwan. If you just look at it geographically, from Japan, Taiwan down to the Philippines, it's a natural barrier containing the Chinese Navy from moving into the Pacific Ocean. So, so strategically, from a military standpoint, it's also important to the West. Jimmy, let's go to technology then, because it gets again into U.S.-China, uh, at least in, 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 uh, in, in many ways. Um, uh, it's at the center of the strategic competition between the two countries. And there was a recent report from Harvard, the Belfer Center, warning that China will likely overtake the U.S. from a technological capability standpoint in critical areas like artificial intelligence, 5G, green energy, the, the, the typical list. Um, what do you think about this risk? Do you, do you think that we are falling behind and will continue to fall behind China? I think China is certainly a very formidable competitor and they are uh, ahead of us in some areas such as 5G and, and also artificial intelligence where they are free to work on all this big data. There's no privacy and you know private companies have to share data with the government anyway and they have a huge sample with 1.3 billion people. Whereas here, uh, you know, we have privacy laws um, and, and unfortunately some of our companies uh, are so woke that they wouldn't collaborate with the Pentagon, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, so, so China seems to have an edge in some of those fields. But in the end, software has to run on hardware. The hardware is driven by semiconductor and we still control the most advanced semiconductor technologies from a manufacturing standpoint, working with TSMC and having all the equipment suppliers from ASML in, uh, you know, in the Netherlands to our domestic companies. And we recognize the threat from China. So, so there has been an embargo put in place. And in fact, we were very, you know, able, you know, you know very capable. In fact, we demonstrated this capability in really uh, damaging Huawei's rise in technology. Huawei's cell phone business really has collapsed because of the lack, lack of access to semiconductor manufacturing at TSMC. So, so I do think we, we, we still have the lead in some critical areas. If we play our cards right, we should continue to maintain that lead. I think the mistake China made was to really go hostile, uh, really showing their cards too early. You know, this whole Made in China 2025 uh, program, which really alerted the rest of the world to be on guard. So, so that's actually a good thing 
for you know the rest of the world. You know, being able to now uh, be more guarded about our intellectual property and understanding that it is a strategic competitor that we cannot take lightly. Uh, Jimmy, if we if we extend from this and put your uh, technology analyst and strategy hat on, what areas within technology do you think are the best investing opportunities uh, for you know for our clients and advisors listening on the phone? Yeah, you know certainly you look at areas such as you know artificial intelligence, big data, you know software still has a lot of potential. Uh, the, the challenge is always that the valuation may have reflected some of that potential. Uh, the other huge trend for the rest of this decade is really decarbonization. And that touches on more than just green energy. It's really the supply chain. So even the old economy from utilities to industrial companies, they will play a role. So that's huge opportunities to investors. It doesn't have to be leading edge technology. It could be just upgrading the power grid you know, across so many countries uh, as we embrace decarbonization. So, so that to me is a you know, very clear growth driver for the remainder of this decade. Let's go to international investing on the heels of that, uh, Jimmy. Uh, you know, international stocks have obviously continued to uh, underperform the U.S. Um, how do you see that going forward? Um, you know, one of the things that comes through your comments very clearly, which I'm pleased to hear, is the relatively the relative good position of the United States from a macroeconomic growth standpoint. So, um, you, you know, obviously there are many investing opportunities available here, but people have been looking at this imbalance between returns here and returns outside the U.S., whether it's in developed non-U.S. or in emerging markets. So how do you see the, the international investing landscape in 22 and beyond? Yeah, you know, it's being so frustrating with international investments over the last decade plus. I think in the last 12 years, international markets have only outperformed the U.S. twice. And on a cumulative basis, there's a huge gap in, cum in, in cumulative you know, returns. But I do think things go in cycle. Um, you know, if you strip out, well, the U.S. market has benefited from our technology leadership. If you strip out the biggest tech companies, that the FANG stocks, uh, that the returns more comparable. And the other factor is also the currency. So last year, again, U.S. led the rest of the world. But some of the European markets actually had 20 plus percent, almost 30 percent return in their local markets. But on a currency adjusted basis, because of the strength of the dollar, they underperformed the U.S. again. I do believe that you know, going forward, one from a valuation standpoint, there's such a wide gap that, that you know, you know, given a, on a multi-year basis, uh, international should start to catch up on a relative basis. And also on the currency front, um, all of a sudden now everyone's bullish the U.S. dollar. Interestingly, historically, the U.S. dollar tends to appreciate going into an expected Fed tightening cycle. And, and, and then it tends to peak right after the first rate hike. So at some point, we're likely to see the U.S. dollar weakening. So if you look at 2022 and 23, given that the rest of the world has lacked the U.S. in terms of stimulus, in terms of the pace of the recovery, and if the dollar starts to weaken some after the, red, you know, the, the, the Fed starts the rate hike campaign, we could make a case that maybe finally international stocks could, could outperform the U.S. here in 22 and 23. But again, it's been a difficult road, and uh, you know, we, you know, we just have to see how things play out. But I guess <laughs> a diversified portfolio. There are great companies outside the U.S. as well. We should have exposure to them. Yeah, Jimmy, let's go to a little deeper on, on, on specific markets. Europe and Japan, as an example, are they challenged on a secular basis? And and uh, you know, they they may trade well at different points in time. And specific companies, as you said, clearly will do well. But uh, are those markets, uh, you know, uh, facing secular headwinds for the foreseeable future, years, maybe even decades? Yeah, unfortunately, I think from a demographic standpoint, uh, Japan and Europe uh, are in worse shape than the U.S. Uh, and also from, you know, the angle of innovation, regulations, uh, U.S. is still the, the engine of innovation of growth. So on a secular basis, we are still better positioned as an economy. But that said, expectations are also higher for the U.S. So, so, so given the relative uh, difference in expectation, uh, I still think cyclically those markets uh, could outperform. 
And the, the, the other thing I would note is that um, I personally would not do uh, passive investing with international investments because I do think you want to be selective with the companies you own. So, so from the portfolio construction standpoint, the, the exposure to uh, overseas investment, I believe, should be actively managed. Uh, Jimmy, what about emerging markets? Can they ever live up to their promise? I mean, it's been a difficult 10 years or more there as well, right? Yeah, it's unfortunately emerging market, the way the index is constructed, China is such a big part of the uh, benchmark. And for several years, Chinese leading technology companies were doing extremely well, right? I mean, it's like outside the US, where do you find leading edge technology companies? You go to China. But then with their regulatory crackdown, they have underperformed materially. So without China pulling its weight, it's difficult for the emerging market index to really outperform. We really need to look for the, the next uh, great hope, which may be India. So, so I do think, again, this is an area where you want actively managed uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, exposure uh, to emerging markets where you can pick out the best companies. As a whole, um, I'm cautious that China, uh, on a longer term basis, is going to continue to decelerate or have regulatory issues. But I'm hopeful there are other regions, Indonesia, uh, India, uh, and if there's a, a commodity boom, even Latin America and parts of Africa could do well, depending on you know how well you know this commodity boom uh, you know affect these countries. So Jimmy, let's come to something that people are very focused on, which is your outlook for 2022. Yeah, 2022, I believe, will continue to be an above trend uh, growth year from an economic standpoint, probably more front loaded with some deceleration at the back end. Um, I think the issue with 22 is that uh, expectations are high, valuations are high, but companies are in very strong position. Um, so on the balance, I, I see a year where we will still get uh, some positive return, but probably a lot less than what we're used to compared to the last three years. Now, historically, the third year of a bull market tends to be choppier, tends to be more challenging because usually it's a time that inflation starts to pick up. So the policies start to get tighter and that creates more headwinds. So overall, I think we will see higher volatility. I wouldn't rule out a double digit drawdown, but historically those drawdowns in the third year of the bull market tends to be good buying opportunity. I don't see a recession uh, on the horizon, you know, let's say over the next couple of years. So in the absence of a uh, recession on the horizon, I do believe we're still in the midst of a bull market. It's just we will see higher volatility in 2022. And you touched on some of this, uh, but uh, areas of opportunity. You know, as you as you rank them, what are what are some of the things that you think, uh, given your macro perspective, pandemic coming down, you know, continued deceleration in China. What are the biggest investment opportunities that you see in 2022? Yeah, so certainly I think we're in mid-cycle now and that tends to favor quality, uh, you know, uh, stocks. I think they will outperform. Uh, I actually prefer hedge funds, well-managed long-short hedge funds that have the ability to go net short to potentially position for the higher volatility that I anticipate in this year. And there are still pockets of froth in the market. And as the Fed withdraws liquidity, or, or just you know stop QE uh, and, and as rates start to move higher, potentially some of those areas of froth will see more pressure. So I like to go on the offense with well-managed long short strategies that, that, that can profit from those dislocations. Um, I also think commodity continues to be an attractive area, at least in 2022. Beyond that, a lot will depend on how the Chinese economy fares. But I suspect China needs to stabilize growth in 2022, as Xi Jinping positions himself to, to, to win another term uh, late this year. So overall, I see some stabilization in China. I even see some stabilization in the Sino-US relationship in that we may roll back some of the tariffs. So that, that, that may benefit some of these uh, uh, more export-oriented uh, you know, businesses as, as global growth you know, does well post-Omicron. Uh, so, so these are some of the opportunities. And Jimmy, the other, the flip side, and, and I know some of what you'll say here, but the greatest risk, and you've, you've, you've uh, 
foreshadow some of them in this dialogue, but what are the things we should look for that would create material downside uh, for markets, U.S. economy, global economy? I think we're still hopefully at the tail end of this pandemic era. So I rule out there wouldn't be another variant that's more uh, virulent. So, so that could create havoc. Now, my base case is that we'll get beyond Omicron and that we will have better natural immunity across the world and that will help the, the normalization process. But I cannot rule out potentially another variant causing disruptions. I also think on the geopolitical side, um, you know, the negotiation with Iran on the nuclear issues are not going well. I think Russia, Ukraine remains uh, a potential flashpoint. Uh, certainly the, the, the continued strategic rivalry with China uh, is an issue. And in fact, we're just hearing now in Kazakhstan, these protests against higher fuel prices. And, and if you remember back in 2011, when we had a brief spike up in commodity prices, that led to the Arab Spring, which brought down some of our allies, uh, President Mubarak in Egypt, you know, for example. So inflation could create some political instability around the world. So I see risk more coming from the geopolitical side. On the policy front, you know, we'll see if the Fed uh, really becomes more hawkish, you know, more hawkish than the market may be expecting or not. Uh, my sense is I'm somewhat optimistic maybe, uh, you know, that, that the Fed will turn out to be slightly more dovish than the current market expectation. So, Jimmy, let me take you out <coughs> a little bit farther um, because, the, frankly, your insights are, are, are so terrific, near-term, medium-term. So if we, if we fast forward uh, to, you know, 2030 or 2032, um, things that, uh, that may come to pass that uh, you think will, will affect everything that we're talking about here that are kind of out of the box, Boy, that's a challenging question because, you know, as you know, in the investment business, it's hard enough to, you know, forecast things on a one, three, five-year window, let alone 10-year. Yeah. Um, uh, I would still think that by 20, you know, 10 years from now, by 2032, the U.S. will still be the largest economy in the world. The U.S. dollar will still be the reserve currency. Uh, there may be different uh, government-issued digital currency. Um, I, I would hope by then, um, you know, China has already gone through some domestic changes, political shifts that, that, that this rivalry uh, would, would, you know, hopefully would have become, uh, you know, a thing of the past. Um, you know, certainly uh, aging demographics uh, will be a challenge. Uh, in the meantime, it's going to create a lot of opportunities on the healthcare side. Um, but by, by then, uh, the, the country will look very different. Uh, you know, demographically and ethnically. Uh, hopefully, between now and then, we will have smart immigration policies to keep the growth going. And as investors, I would just say, stick with high-quality companies, buy them at a reasonable price. In the long run, they tend to always pay off. You own the best companies or, or the really strong companies and not overpay for them. That's uh, it, it's, a, it's a difficult question to pop on you at the end, but I knew you would do a great job with it. And uh, Jimmy, we had a, a client, and I'm going to uh, leave their name out and maintain confidentiality uh, for uh, given the sentiments. But they sent something in here that I think many people on this call are thinking, uh, and it's really the best of what we were putting together here at Rockefeller. This kind of intellectual capital, as I like to say, and insights that you're bringing to the table so early in the year. And this client said, "Not a question, but a compliment." Thank you for the straightforward, candid, detailed presentation and discussion. This is the type of stuff that is invaluable to my wife and I as investors. It reinforces the confidence we have in you. We are extremely pleased that our advisors chose to join Rockefeller Capital Management. Well done. So uh, I thank uh, that client for sending that in. I can't think of a, a greater compliment to uh, what we're uh, putting together here at Rockefeller Capital Management than hearing that directly from uh, from uh, one of our clients. Uh, I have to say, since it's not me, it's you, uh, I'm in full agreement on the value that you're bringing to uh, the franchise and to our clients and our advisors. Uh, so thank you so much again for being here and for doing this. Uh, we'll keep coming on on a regular basis with Jimmy. Um, and if Jimmy and I can hang in there, we'll be here in 2032. I don't have a date yet. 
to see how Jimmy did on his long range predictions. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, we can uh, we can schedule that one too. Um, I always end with a quotation. I'm certainly going to start uh, 2022 uh, for our clients and our team with that. Again, happy new year to everybody. Um, Welcome to yet another year. Uh, let's make it a great one in all directions. And the entire Rockefeller Capital Management team will do all we can for our clients every day uh, to uh, serve them as well as they can possibly be served. So Pearl Buck, a famous author, I read The Good Earth, I forget, high school or, or junior high. Uh, she said the following, and this is, I think, true of, of Jimmy, uh, and it's definitely true on a macro basis in life. She said the following quote, the secret of joy in work is contained in one word, excellence. To know how to do something well is to enjoy it. Jimmy Chang does the, his work very well. Uh, and because of that, uh, or at least in part because of that, I know he enjoys it. So Jimmy, thanks again for being here. Uh, all the best to uh, our clients, uh, our team, and everybody listening uh, off and running in 2022. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.